Welcome to this week's episode of the North Bible Church Podcast. Now, let's join our pastor as we open God's Word together. All right, so uh, thank you, Wes. Thank you, Kayla, for coming to us all the way from Indiana. It looks beautiful there this time of year. So thanks for joining us, guys, uh, online. It's great to have you with us this morning. As Wes just mentioned, we are going to continue our series uh, called Crucial Questions by talking about, over the next couple of weeks, LGBT issues. And as you can imagine, as we opened up our questions for crucial questions earlier before the series started, we got a ton of questions about this issue in particular. Probably not very surprising. I mean, so these are some of the most frequently asked questions, especially right now, in terms of how the church is involved and engaging in the culture around us. And I know that the topics like this can be so charged with emotion and opinion, and quite honestly, can be so complex. So we're actually going to tackle this in two weeks. Um, And as we've been doing throughout this series, we're going to be looking at what the Bible has to say about this. You know, uh, in a lot of ways, I was kind of back and forth about how to title the question for this week. Uh, One of the questions that I had in mind is, what should we believe about LGBT issues? But I think more consistently with what we've been doing in Crucial Questions, we should probably be asking this question the way it's framed today, which is, what does the Bible say about LGBT issues? Because we've been all about in this series, not necessarily talking about our opinions or what the world may think, but really what does the Bible have to say about these various issues? And what we are saying throughout this is that we want to be able to present the scriptures to you, present God's word to you in a way that is understandable, that you can can access it and that you can kind of research it and, and come to your own understanding on these things, but also presenting it in a way where scripture is just straightforward so that you can see and understand why we come to the interpretations and the understandings that we do. And so this is going to be important for us over the next couple of weeks. We're going to be talking today about what does the Bible say about LGBT issues, and then next week we're going to talk about how the church should respond to LGBT issues, and we're going to divide it up in two, two parts that way. So since we have so much to talk about on this subject matter, and really because the subject matter is what it is, I just want to warn you ahead of time that I'm not going to use a lot of humor over the next couple of weeks, and I'm warning you guys, I don't want you to be disappointed. I know that most of you tune in because of my impeccable sense of humor, so I don't want to disappoint you in that way, but, uh, but, that, but we, we, we really are going to focus on some really serious issues, and so there won't be a lot of that going on. Um, and uh, I also want to say, like, when you're preaching in a, in a room that's mainly empty towards a camera, it is really hard to tell jokes because you don't get the pity laughs from your bad jokes that you tell, and all the people in this room, they've all heard my bad jokes enough so they don't laugh at them anymore. And so anyway, so for those reasons, we're just going to be uh, really focused. And, and seriously, the, I guess the big, the big point that I want to make here is that this is such a critical and serious topic that I want to encourage you to focus as much as you can. And so if you're at home right now and there's some distractions that are going on in the room and you need to maybe get the kids corralled and get them onto the other room or you need to turn up the volume on the TV so that you can really lock in, I would encourage you to do that. In fact, I'll give you a moment to do that right now. Okay. All right, so, so but let's start, let's start with this. As we begin into this topic, I think one of the things that is going to become an important theme throughout the next two weeks is how we use language and how we define our terms. Um, you've heard me say LGBT already, and I want to be clear that LGBT is an abbreviation for a, another abbreviation that is widely recognized as LGBTQIA+. 
And I'm going to explain what each of those letters mean here in just a minute in case you're not familiar with them. But before we do, I I just want to remind us that these are not just letters that are grouped together just to kind of represent some kind of an agenda or some kind of just general group of people. These are actually letters that represent real human beings that have to speak to their sexual orientation, that speak to their gender identity, real human beings created in the image of God, whom God loves and who we've been called to love as well as Christians. And so as we define these things, let's realize that these are not just letters that are thrown uh, against the wall. These actually represent people and people created in God's image. So let's start into this. L, you may know, represents lesbian, and a lesbian which describes a female who is primarily sexually attracted to other females. G represents gay. Gay uh, describes a male who is primarily sexually attracted to other males. I'm also going to use the word gay to talk about gay and lesbian, just to talk about same-sex attracted people. Uh, B stands for bisexual, someone who is sexually attracted to both males and females. T stands for transgender, someone whose gender identity is different than their biological sex assigned at birth. Q stands for queer or questioning, which is more of an umbrella term for those who wish not to categorize their sexuality or who are questioning their sexuality in some way. I stands for intersex, and intersex describes a person who was born with reproductive or sexual anatomy that has both male and female characteristics. Sometimes that's the internal reproductive system that has both male and female characteristics. Sometimes that's external sexual organs as well. Asexual represents someone who does not experience uh, sexual attraction, and then the plus is there to recognize the fact that this is an ever-evolving discussion that can add additional groups and definitions as we go forward. And so I wanted to find those terms for us because when I say LGBT, I'm not trying to leave out anybody, but for the sake of brevity, since I'm going to be using it so much over the next couple weeks, LGBT represents really all of these categories of people, okay? So as we begin into this topic, I don't want to, I don't want to pretend like this is an easy answer to give. It's a really complicated question in a lot of ways. I mean, just look at all the letters that we just had to define, right? There is nuance to this conversation, And I don't think there's a magic bullet that's just going to resolve the tension that's inherent when we talk about LGBT community and the Christian faith and the church. But I think that this is a good and necessary conversation for us to have. I'm convinced that at the end of this discussion, there are some of you who are going to think I'm way too conservative and legalistic with my conclusions. There are others of you who are going to think I'm way too liberal and permissive with my conclusions. And so I realize that this may create disagreement, but I think the disagreement is worth it because this is such a critical thing to be talking about right now for at least two reasons. First, if you haven't noticed, this is a hugely relevant topic in our culture today. As we said earlier, there were multiple questions asked about LGBT issues through our Crucial Questions uh, online submissions, probably more than any other topic that's been asked. Also, I think we can go ahead and say this, that the church and the LGBT community has not exactly had a great relationship historically. There's been a lot of tension between these two communities, and although in generations past, this tension has not really been uh, too visible. In this last generation, especially as this cultural issue has come to the forefront, that, that uh, tension has been much more visible between what we believe as Christians and then also the LGBT community and us coming to a place where we can understand and we can love all people. And by the church, I mean the church overall, not just North Bible Church. But I say that, but, but I, I remind us of that because as the church, we've been called to love people and to be on mission in the world. In fact, two of our core values here at North Bible Church are love people and love the world. 
And if we can't speak to one of the defining issues in our culture right now with the gospel, with the love of Jesus, with the grace and mercy of Jesus, what good is our mission in the world after all? And so this is an important topic for us to consider in terms of how we engage in our mission that we've been called to love people and to love the world. Secondly, this issue itself actually creates a lot of touch points with some critical aspects of biblical theology. I mean, discussing this issue is really going to force us to reckon with what we believe and how those beliefs are lived out. The good news is that a lot of the things that we've been studying through our Crucial Questions series has actually prepared us for this discussion. In a lot of ways, we waited to talk, to talk about this issue towards the end of this series because we were building a foundation theologically through each week that has prepared us to now begin to enter into this discussion in particular. I mean, if you think about it, think about some of the things that we've gone through so far in this series. In week one, we talked about the purpose of the Bible. In weeks two and three, we answered the question, can we trust the Bible? Week four, we talked about God making us in his image as male and female. Week five was the question, what is God's will for our lives? Week six and seven, we talked about why does God let blank happen? And, and also in week seven, we talked about depression in the Christian, which is a relevant issue for this as well. Week eight, we asked the question, what is essential? Week nine, we talked about should a Christian obey the government, which will be something that we talk about a little bit more next week. And then week 10, which was last week, we talked about can we take the Bible literally, which of course is a big question for today as we engage in this discussion. So in a lot of ways, we've been building to this topic all along. And as you might be able to see, that the, the discussion about LGBT issues is not just a discussion about LGBT issues alone. I think the healthier and better way to approach this is to see this as a bigger biblical context that discusses things like sexuality, marriage, and even who we understand ourselves to be as human beings. And as we've already seen in our series, one of the things we've talked about is that the biblical narrative shows us that sin and the fall and brokenness has its tentacles everywhere in creation, every person and every relationship. And so I'm coming to this discussion from the standpoint that no matter who you are, whether you're straight and happily married, whether you're single, whether you're same-sex attracted, gender dysphoric, whether you're trans, that no matter who you are, we all have broken aspects of our sexuality and we all have broken aspects of our identity in terms of how we understand ourselves to be. And part of the journey of the Christian faith is understanding who we are as our true selves, created in the image of God and redeemed into the image of Christ. So when it comes to relationships, of course, no relationship itself is without sin because every relationship involves two sinful, broken people. No marriage is without sin. In fact, one definition of marriage is that it's putting two sinners together and trying to make them holy. And I'm sure if there was more people in this room, they'd be laughing at that or saying amen to that because that's why marriage is so frustrating at times. We see that happening all the time in our lives. I know that for me, marriage is one of those things that shows me how much I need to work on my own holiness in my life. But in terms of sexual ethics as well, Jesus taught some of the highest ethics on sexuality in the Bible, including all aspects of sexual immorality, heterosexual sexual immorality as well. Remember, he was the one who said, if you are a man and you look at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery with her in your heart. Now, after hearing that, does anyone feel like they have the sexual, the, the sexual moral high ground after hearing that statement? And that's exactly the point of Jesus saying that. And in case you don't feel like sexual temptation or sexual sin is an issue for you, I'll remind you that in that same context, Jesus also said, you have heard it said that whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I tell you, if you are angry with your brother, you will be liable to judgment. 
John also says in 1 John that if you hate your brother, you are a murderer at heart. Have you ever looked at a woman lustfully as a man? Adultery in your heart. Have you ever been angry towards your brother? If we grabbed all the Facebook posts and emails from the previous months that utilized anger towards another person or called them names, or how many offhanded comments we've had in conversations, how many of us would be guilty of being angry or even showing hatred towards another person? Now look, I'm not saying these things to shame you, but I think it's important for us to get this straight from the beginning in the discussion. Because so many times when we talk about LGBT issues in the church, we jump to a behavior or a lifestyle that we feel like just needs to be condemned right away. But what Jesus' words remind us of, though, is that every person, no matter, sexual, no matter what sexual orientation or identity we profess, is on equal footing as people who need God's grace. We are on equal footing before the cross. That's where we need to start, and that's where we need to stay in this discussion. And I realize that some of you at this point are like, yeah, yeah, love and grace, we've heard it all before. We're supposed to love all people, even LGBT people, we get it. Just tell us what you believe about gay marriage so we can decide whether or not you have a job tomorrow. And I get it, and we're going to get there. We're going to talk about that. But, I'm saying, but I want to say this. If that is the way you're feeling right now, I just want to challenge you with the fact that you've probably missed the point of where we need to stay in this discussion. Because in the end, to follow Jesus is to be willing to submit all of, all of everything that we have to the Lordship of Christ. It's willing to submit our sexuality and everything else. No matter who we are, we are all struggling in some way that is broken by sin. And all of us are called in the church to learn to follow Jesus together, whatever that may look like for us. Tim Keller, who is pastor of Res uh, Redeemer Presbyterian Church in in the city of Manhattan, tells a story about a woman who came up to him after a sermon one day, and she said, Pastor, I've been coming to your church for like six months now. I haven't been to church for a long time, and I really just have loved the way that you've talked about Jesus and, and his love and his grace, and the way you've presented the gospel has been in a way that I've never heard it before in my life. And so I think I'm ready to become a Christian and ready to follow Jesus. I'm just worried about one thing in particular. And he said, okay, well, what is that? And she said, well, I'm a lesbian, and I'm married to a woman, my wife doesn't come with me, but I'm afraid that if I begin to follow Jesus, that he's going to ask me to give up my lesbian relationship. And Tim Keller's response was, I think, not just for her, but for all of us to consider. He said to her, look, if, if you're going to follow Jesus, you have a lot more to worry about than just losing your lesbian marriage, because he will come and call you to die to yourself. And look, the point is the same for anyone who would follow Jesus. I think before this is an issue of right and wrong and sexual behavior and ethics, it is a discipleship question. It is a followship question. And following Jesus, we aren't told that we can negotiate how we're supposed to do that. The call is to lay down your life and follow the king as he leads. Matthew 16, 24 through 26. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whomever would, would save his life would lose it. In other words, whoever wants to just kind of grab onto everything that they had before they met Jesus, you will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, whoever freely gives that away and submits it to me, will find true life. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? I know as we read these, these words seem really high standard, harsh, and basically undoable. And it is undoable on our own. That's probably part of the point. But Jesus tells us ahead of time what's it, what it's like to follow him. This is the picture of discipleship in following Jesus. 
And look, as high of a standard as that is, listen also to what Jesus says in Matthew 11. This invitation is a little bit more gracious, and as we balance these two things out, we can see the fuller picture of discipleship. Jesus says in Matthew 11:28 through 30, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Yes, so discipleship is give up your life and all of its desires, but trust me with it all. Your deepest desire is in everything that you have and take on my yoke upon you. Trust me. Trust me because even though you may not understand this, I have what is good for you in the end. This is why we made such an emphasis on what we called lordship salvation a few weeks ago. Because it's not about, because salvation is not about just how do we get saved and then do the minimal amount of listening to Jesus as possible. It is through salvation I get to trust Jesus. I get to know Jesus. I get to walk with Jesus. And as he establishes boundaries and commands in our lives, we know that he does that for our own good. Even when we don't agree with it, we know that it is for our own good, and it's for our own good because he loves us. And again, I want to get that on the forefront of this discussion, because Jesus doesn't say to us, clean up your life, clean up your life, and then come to me. He says, I'll clean up your life, come to me, and we'll figure it out together. In other words, no matter where you are and what your brokenness is, Jesus loves you right where you are, and yet he loves you too much to leave you right where you are. And with all that in place, though, I think this is, I think we have to remember this, because this, again, is a discipleship issue. So when it comes to LGBT matters, I think we're ready now to answer our first question directly. And the first question we're going to look at this morning is this. What does the Bible say about sex and marriage, and does the Bible allow for gay marriage? Now, I think a necessary place for us to start is in forming a biblical sexual ethic. This question gets us to that place. Why did God, and it's simply asking the question, why did God give us sex? And yes, why did God give us sex? Because he gave it to us as a gift. He also gave it to us as a calling. And just like so many other things that God gives us in life, when he gives it to us, he gives it to us for a purpose. That that gift is a blessing, but it is also designed to be used for a purpose, to give God glory with that gift, whatever it may be. That may be a job, it may be a spiritual gift, it may be an ability, it may be relationships, it may be kids, it may be a family, and yes, it is sex, marriage, and even our own bodies. And to see really the gift and purpose for sex, marriage, and our own bodies, I think we can look at what has become a really familiar part of the scriptures for us through this series, the very first two chapters of, of the book of Genesis, the very first two chapters of the Bible. And these passages are really important to in, engage because I think What's more important than us running to those handful of passages in Scripture that are typically used, you know, to prohibit same-sex sexual behavior, which are often called the clobber passages, I think what we need to do is establish more of a context and ask, why do we have sex in the first place? Why has God given it to us? What does it look like? And what is marriage all about? And as we read the first chapter of Genesis, we see a clearer picture of that. And then going into chapter 2, those things are to be viewed really as one unit of the creation narrative. And they have a lot to say about sex, marriage, and really who we understand ourselves to be as well. Now, you may know that the first chapter of Genesis is the chapter of the creation account. As Kayla said earlier, it's where we get to see that God creates human beings in his image. And as you turn to Genesis chapter 1, you may notice that there is a pattern that develops there. Theologians has, have observed this pattern 
and have commented on it extensively, but what you can see in this is that God creates pairs of things together that are in contrast to one another. And so you've got opposites that are included and, and uh, that are put together as pairs and included as pairs and designed to be complementary towards one another. So for instance, it starts with the heavens and the earth. And then it goes to light and darkness, day and night, evening and morning, the seas and dry land, the flying animals, and then the animals who creep along the ground. And all of this builds up to this ultimate, uh, this ultimate crown of creation in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, which is the creation of human beings, seen as a pairing of two opposites, two oppositely sexed persons put together as one and paired together. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 says this, so God created man in his own image, humankind, humanity in his own image, and in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them together as two differently sexed people and, and brought them together in one, as one. And, at, and it's at that point where there's flourishing everywhere that God then gives this command to the man and the woman. Be fruitful and multiply. In other words, go and make babies. He gives them the gift of sex. But then he also tells them to fill the earth and subdue it or, or have dominion over it. Genesis 1.28, the next verse. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Notice that he does this after he creates them and then he gives them the ability to procreate and to create, to bring out life as a result of their sexual union. Now, I don't think we should... I don't think we should take this to say that the only reason we have sex is for procreation, but what we see here is that the fruit of sexual intercourse between two differently sexed people actually creates life. And it promotes, and it, and it creates families and communities and towns that then fill the earth and can subdue the creation as God originally intended. If we go to Genesis 2, we see a little bit more detail about the creation of man and woman and really what seems to be the first wedding ceremony in history as God gives as God both gives away the bride and he officiates the wedding as well. Genesis 2, 21 and 22. So the Lord God caused the deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And this ceremony, by the way, is actually even completed with Adam being his own wedding singer, as he breaks into song in the very next verse, he says, this is one who is like me, but also recognizes that she is opposite, made to complement him in every way. Genesis 2.23, then the man said, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She's just like me. She's another human being. She's not a dog. She's not a, a moose. She's a human being just like me, but she will be called woman because she was taken out of man. But see, there's that difference there as well. And then the next verse is really important as it applies to marriage and sexual relationships. It kind of brings everything home, not only for chapter 2, but the entire creation narrative going all the way back to the beginning of chapter 1. And it says this, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That phrase, therefore, can also be translated, for this reason. For this reason, a man shall leave his mother and his father and cling to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Look, using this context and seeing how this unit flows together, what this says is that the entire creation, all of these opposites that are paired together, is building towards this moment at the end of Genesis chapter 2 that for this reason now, God's purpose and his design in creation can be revealed through these human beings who reflect his image. One male, one female. And look, remember in our message back on 
Mother's Day when we talked about how God has created us in his image. We made the point that God creates both male and female to reflect fully his image in humanity. That man cannot do it alone, a female could not do it alone, and male and male cannot do it, as well as female and female cannot do it. Male and female reflecting God's image fully in humanity as they exercise dominion over creation. I think this is important for us to think through because many of us have generally looked at sex and marriage as something that is just for us and our enjoyment. Some even idolize sex and marriage in our culture as ultimates for a person, but although the Bible, this puts the marriage and sex in the right context because the Bible says although those things are blessings in our lives, neither one of those things are ultimates. Marriage is given to us as a blessing, but it's ultimately given to us primarily not for us, but for God. And in case we think this is just an Old Testament idea, an antiquated idea of marriage um, that changed somehow in the Bible, we have to know that when Jesus talks about marriage, he actually refers right back to this same verse that we read in verse 24. In Matthew 19, 4 and 5, Jesus is answering the question about divorce and marriage, and he says this, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Jesus quotes right back to Genesis chapter 2 and all the design that is there, that God made them male and female, joined them together in marriage as one. And then again in Ephesians, after the death and resurrection of Jesus, after the establishment of Jesus' church, Paul then says in Ephesians chapter 5 that this picture of marriage is given even more substance, even more understanding, because it pictures Jesus' relationship with the church. Ephesians 5, 31 and 32 Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And so again, the notion that marriage exists primarily for me and my happiness and my spouse's happiness is really more of a Western cultural idea than it is a biblical idea. The notion that we need to be married to be fulfilled and we need to have a sex life to be happy, those are all Western cultural ideas more than they are biblical ideas. Because in reality, what's happened is we've tended to make an idol out of sex and an idol out of marriage both inside and outside the church, and those things have become ultimate things that have then defined us and given us our identity. When we look at the Bible, we understand that our identity comes directly from being created in the image of God and our relationship to Him. While sex and marriage are a blessing, at the same time, they are not ultimates. And so, I think the conclusion that we have to reach based on Scripture is explained well by Preston Sprinkle, who's a Christian speaker, an author, and a podcaster who has researched this a lot, studied this issue extensively, and he describes it this way. Look, God designed sex to be expressed in the context of marriage between two sexually different people. And I think when we also add in the fact that every time the Bible mentions same-sex sexual activity, it always prohibits that activity, whether it's in the Old Testament or the New Testament, whether it's Moses, Jesus, or Paul, and that 2,000 years, really up until the last generation or two, have really embraced um, this, 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 this understanding of marriage between two sexually different people. I think we have to say in the end that, uh, that, that, um, that, uh, excuse, that marriage is a covenant relationship between two sexually different people. So, second question then is, are people born gay? If so, shouldn't they be able to do what they want with their own bodies? Rachel Gilson is a Christian author who is also same-sex attracted, and early in her life actually lived an active lesbian lifestyle. 
As a young adult, though, she began reading in the Bible about what the Bible had to say about the lifestyle that she was living as she was living out these active uh, sexual lesbian relationships. And she shares a really powerful story about how God spoke to her about what was going on in her life uh, at that time. And she says as she was reading through the Bible, it wasn't necessarily, again, those passages that prohibit same-sex sexual activity, which there are a few of those in the Bible, but it was actually going back to our familiar book, the book of Genesis. And in particular, Genesis chapter 3, when she read the account of the fall, and she says this, that when she was confronted with the story of the temptation of Eve, she found it really interesting as she put herself in, the, in, in, kind of the, in Eve's shoes and Adam's shoes at that time. She realized that as God put them in the Garden of Eden, he said to them, look, you can eat from any, any, any tree in the garden, any fruit you want, just don't eat from that one tree, that one tree right there in the middle of the garden. And she said, you know, for Adam and Eve, this might have been really confusing for them because God said you can eat fruit from a tree and all of the trees looked great, including this one, where the fruit actually looked really pleasing and it looked really great on the surface. And at the same time, as Eve discovered, it was desired to make one wise. In other words, it gave, somebody, it gave someone wisdom. And so on the surface, everything was saying, this is good, this is right, this is exactly what you should be doing to fulfill the desire to eat and enjoy God's creation and also to be wise. I mean, what's wrong with those things? But the one thing that was keeping her from eating that fruit was God just simply said, don't do it. And at that time for Rachel, everything in her body and everything around her and culture was telling her that she should live out her sexual desires. And it was only God's word that she came to at the end that said, this is God telling me, this is the only reason why I shouldn't do this, because everything else is telling me that I should, but it's only God's word that is telling me this, that I shouldn't live this way. And she realized that it wasn't God ruining her fun, it was God asking her to trust him. Look, I've told you not to do this for your own good. This is not my design for you. And even though it didn't line up with her desires, she came to a place where she trusted God even when it didn't make sense on this issue. And look, Rachel was, has been same-sex attracted her entire life. She still to this day, after being a Christian for nearly 15 years, is same-sex attracted even though she's married to a man. And that's something that has not been taken away, but something that she submits to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And this is a question I think that hits on both the issue of sexual orientation, trans issues, gender dysphoria. Are people born gay? Are people born gender dysphoric? Well, if we're going to say that all of us who are born into this world have some different aspects of brokenness in us that we don't choose, we also have to say that there are people who don't choose their attractions, that they have same-sex attractions in them that they didn't choose, that have just kind of come along as a part of their sexuality. And we need to understand also and say that there are experiences and environments that also do contribute to sexual orientation and desire as well. So it's not either nature or nurture. Really, it's a bit of both, and every person is different. The American Psychological Association says this, No findings have emerged that permit scientists to conclude that sexual orientation is determined by any particular factor or factors. Many think that nature and nurture play complex roles. So what does that mean? Well, it means sexual orientation and gender identity are very complex issues. For some people, they've pivoted their orientation from straight to gay, back to maybe straight again. Uh, for some people who are gender dysphoric, they just feel a gender dysphoria in terms of the traditional, defined, stereotypical roles of male and female. They're not comfortable with that. 
Others experience gender dysphoria to such a degree that it causes them to feel physically sick when they look at their body in the mirror because their biological sex is different than the way that they feel inside as far as their gender identity goes. There are others who are trans. But this is a good reminder in all of this that those letters that we looked at earlier represent real people and a wide variety of people who are created in God's image by his love. So every person experiences this differently And if we're going to love people, we have to realize and treat people accordingly, living in an understanding and loving way. At the same time, inborn desires, of course, don't give us license to do whatever we want with those desires, whether they're heterosexual desires or gay. If they fall outside of God's design for those desires to be expressed, they have to be submitted to the lordship of Jesus. Additionally, our bodies are not our own. 1 Corinthians 6, 18 through 20 says this, Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Sam Alberry, who is another same-sex attracted man who's a Christian, but has decided to live a celibate single lifestyle in submission to the Lordship of Jesus, says this, We need to recognize the cost of discipleship for everyone. For many in our churches, the cost of discipleship for LGBT background people looks cruel and unusual. I suspect in most cases that's because we're not counting the cost of discipleship in other areas of life. Jesus says all of us have to say a profound no to some of our deepest longings and intuitions. That is discipleship. Jesus says it up front. He doesn't bury it in the small print. And this wonderful paradox of the Christian faith is that we deny our, when we deny ourselves, we become our real selves. The people who are gender dysphoric or struggling with same-sex attraction often talk about trying to find who they believe their real selves to be through their gender identity or through their sexual orientation. But the Bible reminds us that sexual orientation and gender identity are not ultimate aspects of who we are. They are a part of who we are, but they are not who our real selves really are. That our real selves are found in understanding the way God has created us and the way God is remaking us in the image of Jesus Christ. Which leads us to the last and final question that we have this morning for today. Can a Christian be gay? Now, I know this is the question that everyone was waiting for. And so, again, I want to go to the Bible for our answer. In the New Testament... There are at least a few places where the Bible prohibits gay sexual behavior. And at least in a couple of those passages, there is this Greek word that is used, the Greek word arsenokotes, which is a word that's actually a, a compound word that Paul, the Apostle Paul seems to have kind of put together and coined himself. Because you don't see it anywhere else in the New Testament. And in ancient Greek, we don't really see it used very often as well. But it's a combo, it's a combo word that combines the word man, arson, with koites, which means bed. And it's used in at least two places. One is 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, which is in the same context that we just read about our bodies glorifying God. And it says this, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. The word is also used in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 1, verse 10. 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 10 says this, Now that we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. 
For the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Now first, I think what we need to notice is that practicing homosexuality, as it's a part of each one of these verses, as it's translated here, is a part of a bunch of other sins, including things like sexual immorality, lying, uh, being a thief, and also whatever is contrary to sound doctrine. And I think that's important to point out because in the church, we have typically had this inclination to make, to treat gay sexual activity as a different kind of sin. When in reality, in the Bible, it puts it all together with these other sins side by side. So we have to remember that, the first point, which brings us to the second point here. In both cases, that Greek word that Paul uses, again, arsenokoites, is a compound word which he's referring to specifically men who sleep with other men. Now, there's some debate about this word in context, but in reality, when you look at what it says, especially in 1 Timothy uh, 1, verse 10, you can see that Paul is saying men who, lie with, men who sleep with other men. And if you consider the context of 1 Corinthians 6, where Paul uses in the background male pronouns, when he says someone who sleeps with another man, he's talking about men who sleep with other men. It's not about pedophilia. It's not about rape. It's about men who sleep with other men, just in its straightforward term. Now, here's why this is important, because when it comes to LGBT people and Christian discipleship, we have to make a distinction between um, being gay, or probably a more uh, preferable term, being same-sex attracted, and the activity of actually sleeping with a man here, or gay sexual activity. So to answer that question of whether or not you can be a gay Christian, if we're saying that gay means a man who is attracted primarily to, to other men sexually, we have to define what we're talking about. Because to be clear, being same-sex attracted is not a sin. However, gay sexual activity is a sin. There's a distinction between those two things. And there are some who are same-sex same attracted Christians, whether they are gay or lesbian, and they do not act on their sexual desire because they are Christians and they've submitted their sexual desires to the Lordship of Jesus. I've mentioned a couple of them already. There's one more I'd like to introduce you to. Her name is Jackie Hill Perry. And she wrote a great book called Gay Girl, Good God. And it's all about how growing up as a lesbian and growing up with same-sex attraction, she came to a place where she met Jesus, and she realized that in my discipleship with Jesus, I need to lay this down. Even though I still remain same-sex attracted, and now she is actually married to a man as well, and I'm a Christian, I'm laying these things down for discipleship to follow God. And she says this, The only constant in this world is God. Gayness, on the other hand, can be an immovable identity only when the heart is unwilling to bow. Again, this is what we've been talking about today, that since Jackie was a lesbian practicing on a, a, a same-sex sexual a lifestyle, she came to a place with her sexual orientation that she realized that this sexual orientation is not an ultimate. And she said, at one point, it seemed to be an immovable identity, but when I allowed Jesus to get on the throne and allowed my heart to bow to him, it became something that was not an immovable identity. I found my identity in Jesus. And look, those things can have, that, that identity issue is an identity crisis that all of us experience in different ways, whether it's our jobs, our families, our socioeconomic status, and certainly our sexual orientation or even our gender identity. Those things will not move off the throne of our hearts until we're willing to bow to the lordship of Jesus, who is the true king. As a result, here are some great guiding words from Jackie. She says this, God is not calling gay people to be straight. 
In other words, God is not trying to, in every case, change somebody's same sexual attraction before they come to him. He is saying God is calling gay people to be holy. In other words, set apart for the purpose that he has created them for, that he has designed us all for. And if that means to move forward, still being same-sex attracted and following Jesus, but to submit that to his will, then that's the calling for some folks. And we'll talk next week about what this looks like from the context of discipleship in the church and what it means for us to be walking together in community as we follow Jesus. But it's my prayer, ultimately, that um, LGBT people would find a welcome place and a safe place in our church to follow Jesus and to learn about what it means uh, to be a disciple and to call and to be called to follow him to be holy. And again, that's for next week. We're going to talk a little bit more about that next week. But before we do, I just want to close with a couple of words. I'm, I'm fairly confident that there are a few of you out there, as I said earlier, who may feel like the conclusions that I made this morning are a little bit more permissive and liberal than you are comfortable with. There might be some of you who are on the other side saying, I feel like you're way too legalistic or conservative with your, uh, with your um, conclusions. Now look, I think that's the nature of a lot of things in our world right now. I mean, if we can be divided over wearing masks, we can certainly be divided over this. And so I'd encourage you in the midst of this to do your own research into the scriptures. And by that, I don't mean like get, your, get, get a blog or a, a video of a pastor's sermon that's on either extreme end of this and email them to me. But I mean, go to the scriptures, the scriptures that we've talked about today, research them, look at them for what they are, and I'd be happy to talk with you and dialogue with you about what the scriptures have to say. And hopefully you can see, though, that this is a complex issue. For those of you um, who are gay or same-sex attracted or gender dysphoric, if you're watching with us here this morning, first of all, thank you for joining us and thank you for listening. Hopefully this has helped you figure out a little bit more about what the Bible says to have some clarity on um, what, how you're understanding your identity and your experiences. You may not agree with my conclusions, but I would certainly invite you to continue this dialogue with us as we go forward in following Jesus together. For those of you who have LGBT people in your life, people you love who are friends or family members, you already know this is a complex issue. But I hope this has helped you to kind of get some handles on what the Bible has to say so you can have some clarity on your own. And next week we're going to talk a lot more about what it looks like uh, to, to be the church on mission. Lives, lives around us, neighbors and friends and family members who may be LGBT and how we engage that. And finally for all of us, no matter where we're at on this issue, I hope today was a challenge to see things from a more biblical perspective, wherever you may be challenged in your life. And I hope that you'll deeply consider where you've gotten your ideas about LGBT issues in the Bible and see how they really line up with what the Bible has to say. But I think for all of us, whether we're gay, straight, asexual, that we can realize our need for God's grace in Jesus Christ because that is the most important thing. I can't overemphasize that enough, that our greatest treasure and our ultimate identity is found in him, and that when we submit those things to the king who is redeeming them all, he is glorified, and as Sam Alberry said so eloquently in the quote we just read, that as we follow Jesus, we become our true selves in Christ. So I'm going to invite the band to come back up and join me. I want to pray for us this morning as we close. Lord Jesus, we know that this is a very complex issue, and, and, I, and I think for a lot of us, whether um, we are struggling with sexual identity or whether we know somebody who is, we know how complex and how painful it can be to wrestle with these issues. We know how painful it can be because we have, um, 
tried in some, in some ways, maybe with our best intentions, to understand this from a biblical standpoint and have ended up hurting people and saying the wrong thing, saying the thing we shouldn't say, saying the thing we didn't even know we shouldn't say in some cases. And so, Lord, I thank you for your grace and mercy. As I'm thinking about this, I, I feel like as we've gone through what we've, we've uh, talked about today, Lord, that you have pointed out in the end that it's your desire to redeem us all from the ground up. That we have broken aspects in our hearts and in our sexuality and in our identity that we don't even recognize and know. And you have said, come to me because my burden is light, my yoke is light. And you will find rest for your souls. The things that are warring in our hearts right now, I pray for our friends who are struggling and warring right now in their heart over their sexual orientation or their gender identity and it is, it is it is, it is racking their soul. I pray that you would give rest to their soul, Lord Jesus. I pray that they would take you up on your invitation to come to you in faith, knowing that in the end, um, you have said the call to discipleship is high, but you have told us to trust you, and you have told us that you work all things out for our good. And so, Lord, we don't have to have all that figured out in the end. All we have to do is take that one step the invitation that says, come to me and I will give you rest for your soul. So I pray that no matter where we are, no matter who we are, that we would take that next step in faith. Lord, it's for the first time to know you, Lord Jesus, or to take a deeper step into saying, Lord, I don't know what it means to really love people in this way and I'm struggling with this area in my life or I know this is brokenness that you have been revealing to me and I haven't been able to make that step forward and to trust you with it. Whatever that thing may be, Lord, may you give us the faith to be able to make that step. We pray these things in your gracious, loving, and holy name, Lord Jesus. Amen. In just a moment, we'll rejoin our pastor for today's closing thoughts. But first, we wanted to thank you for tuning in. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com. Now, some closing thoughts from our pastor. Well, thank you again for joining us uh, this morning. I hope you were encouraged. I hope you were blessed. I hope you saw Jesus more clearly from our discussion today. I want to remind you that next week is kind of part two of, it was really part two of, of a, of a two-part message. This week was about orthodoxy, what we should believe. If we want to call next week is orthopraxy, how we should practice these things and how we live these things out faithfully and true as the church and as Christians. So I hope you'll plan on joining us next week. Uh, this week, um, we are planning on releasing uh, some news about what our plans are for August, for the month of August, in terms of gathering on Sunday morning. So keep an eye out. If you're not on our newsletter, email newsletter list, um, contact Sharon Smith in our office so she can get you on that list. And just keep an eye out on our Facebook page for the video announcement that's coming later this week. We'll see you. Have a great week, and we'll see you again next Sunday. Thanks. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com.